Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 3, last audio, we took up the first 12 verses where Jesus healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. In this audio, we're going to take up two incidents. First, Jesus choosing his 12 apostles, and next, Jesus being accused of having Beelzebul in him. Actually, not that he wasn't accused that Beelzebul was in him. He was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebul. And actually, if, if we're going to take up three incidents. The third incident being the Jesus' parents thinking that he was crazy. So we'll start with Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. With this first incident, there's only one parallel section in Luke 6, 12 through 16. So we'll compare those two passages as we go through. Mark chapter 3 verse 13 says this, Then he, Jesus, went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. This is the summoning of the twelve. We see in Luke 6 verse 12, During those days he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. So Jesus is about to do probably the most important thing he did before the cross. He's choosing the men who would carry on what he had done after he died so that the work of Jesus would extend through the whole world. Now, this is an important task, and Luke tells us that Jesus prayed all night before choosing those apostles, all night in prayer. And remember, this was after a day of healing people all day, as John Gill points out. Notice that Mark says that Jesus summoned those he wanted. Jesus chose his disciples, not vice versa. As we know from the other passages, when Jesus chose disciples, he chose them. They didn't choose him. And he chose them not according to the disciples' merits, as John Gill points out. I mean, after all, Peter denied him three times. Never did understand. Call, uh, Jesus had to one time say, get behind me, Satan, cause Jesus, because Peter wouldn't go along with Jesus' idea of fulfilling his mission by dying on the cross. We got James and John wanting to call down fire on, on an unbelieving village. We had Judas who betrayed him. So this was a serious thing. And a lot of people ask, well... If he prayed all day, why did he come up with disciples like that? Well, we know most of them were redeemed. James and John, of course, ended up being great leaders in the church, and so did Peter. Judas, of course, betrayed him, but that was predestined from before the foundation of the world so that Jesus could die for the sins of the world. So it's not like God, it's not like Jesus didn't hear God when he chose those disciples. One time a man once asked a theologian, why did Jesus choose Judas Iscariot to be his disciple? The teacher replied, I don't know, but I have an even harder question. Why did Jesus choose me? I suppose this illustrates the very profound point that a lot of times you ask, you pray, and you pray, and you get answers, and things don't turn out, and you say, why in the world did God answer the prayer that way? This is a disaster, because we don't remember that Romans 8.28, God always works out things for the good of those who love him. You just have to wait and see how things work out in this veil of tears. Moving on to Mark chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. He also appointed 12, that's Jesus, appointed 12. He also named them apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now the Luke parallel passage says this, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. So that was the next morning after he'd prayed all night. And he chose, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named Apostles. So let's take up this word apostles now. The term is used only twice in Mark's gospel. It's used in two senses, as the NIV Study Bible says. In general, the word means messenger. Apostolos is a sent one, a messenger. John 13, 16 uses the, the, the Greek word apostolos in that way. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, 
and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. So that's just in general terms as, as a messenger. However, in the sense that Jesus uses it, it's, he uses it in a technical sense. Now, this technical sense can also be divided into two further uses of the word. First of all, it could refer just to the twelve, as it does here. He says in Mark 3, verse 14, he also appointed twelve. He also named them apostles. All right, so these are the, what I call capital A apostles. They're not capitalized in the English translations, but a capital A apostles means one of the twelve. Now, some people, a lot of times, for reasons of trying to prove the canon and so forth, they'll say Paul is one of these capital A apostles. For example, in Romans 1, 1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for, good, for God's good news. But I, ha I have a question here. How can we say Paul is the same as the original 12? I don't buy that categorization. He wasn't one of the original 12. So the, in the technical sense of apostle, meaning a servant of the kingdom of God, as opposed just to a general messenger, a sent one going out in order to establish the kingdom of God. In that technical sense, we have the original 12 capital A apostles, and then we have little a apostles, just people in general who went out and they established churches as they spread the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 14, the apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this. The apostles Barnabas and Paul, so you see Barnabas is an apostle, Paul is an apostle. Galatians 1.19, Paul says this, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and James, the Lord's brother, was not one of the original apostles. He didn't believe in Jesus till, till later. So James, the Lord's brother, is called an apostle. He was someone who went out and, I'm, I'm sure, in Judea, went around and started churches in the area around Jerusalem, I suppose. Romans 16, 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, or Junia, some translations have, my fellow countrymen and fellow persons. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, as they were also in Christ Jesus before me. I will mention in passing here that some translations have it. They, he, uh, Junia is a noteworthy apostle, and since Junia has a feminine in, ending, this is where feminist, evangelical feminists love to say, see there, there was a woman apostle. To which I reply, well, one, you got one woman apostle. It seems like the exception proves the rule, even if you're right, and you're not, because this is perfectly good translation. They are noteworthy in, noteworthy in the eye. Andronicus and Junia are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostle. If Junia is a woman, she's noteworthy in the eyes of the other apostles. But at any rate, there you see the term apostle being used not in a technical, I'm a follower of Jesus, Jesus sense. And again, people who do this, scholars who want to make these apostles special and not just unnamed church planners who go around, they want to limit the writing of scripture to these to apostles, many people who have that theory of the canon want to limit the writing of the scriptures to capital A apostles, people who were with Jesus or who had seen Jesus, in my opinion, misusing that verse in Corinthians says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? I have grave doubts about that because I believe that an apostle is like today's teachers, today's prophets, today's evangelists, the workers uh, in the the ministry workers mentioned in Ephesians and in first Corinthians 12 that these apostles are not people who write scripture they're not people who with Jesus they're people sent out to establish churches and spread the kingdom but of course the cessationist the killjoy crypto deist cessationists who think that everything's died out in the first century they don't buy that so I'll leave that up to your decision now these 12 apostles Mark says he's he 
gave them authority to send them out to preach. That means to proclaim the gospel, to try to win people into the kingdom, and to have authority to drive out demons. You notice that driving out demons has get, is got equal billing here with preaching the kingdom because it's sort of related. But, of course, cessationists say we don't drive out demons today. I guess they do. Maybe, who knows? I wish cessationists would cease. That's who should cease. They should cease talking because they are killing the power of Christ today in this world when we need it so badly as the church is getting ready to have its candlestick plucked out here in the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now let's make a distinction between between disciple and apostle. A disciple is just a general word that means a learner. The Greek word has a root meaning of learn. A disciple is a student. As Leon Morris says, a disciple was a learner, a student. But in the first century, a student did not simply study a subject. He followed a teacher. There is an element of personal attachment in disciple that is lacking in the word student. So a disciple is somebody who follows Jesus, but he's not one of the special 12 that Jesus gave special authority to. As John Gill and Adam Clark say, the 12, the number 12 was probably chosen in reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's why Jesus chose the number. Now let me give you a quote from Gill to show how 12, how many times 12 shows up in the Old Testament. Quote, the number 12 is either an allusion to the 12 spies that were sent by Moses into the land of Canaan, or to the 12 stones in Aaron's breastplate, or to the 12 fountains the Israelites found in the wilderness, or to the 12 oxen on which the molten sea stood in Solomon's temple, or to the 12 gates in Ezekiel's temple, or rather to the 12 patriarchs and the tribes which sprang from them. That as they were the fathers of the Jewish nation, which was typical of God's chosen people, so these, these twelve apostles, were to be the instruments of spreading the gospel, not only Judea, but all the world, and of planting Christian churches there. We read in Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, I assure you, in the Messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, and I'm assuming the Messianic age is the church age now, you who have followed, not the end of the world age, but the church age now, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones. So Jesus says, hey, just like the 12 patriarchs, you will sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So you see the close connection between the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. We have a transition from the old Israel to the new Israel. And, of course, my favorite, one of my favorite verses is Revelation 21:14, describing the new Jerusalem, which I take to be the new covenant, which include all the way from AD 30 to the end of the world, not just at the end of the world, as so many people take Revelation, the new Jerusalem and Revelation 21 to be, but I don't take it that way. The, and the wall of the city had, in verse 14 says this, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the foundation of the kingdom of God, the foundation of the new Jerusalem is the 12 apostles. And that, and then, of course, in, the, in that same image of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, there were 12 gates, three on each side, and on top of the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you see the close connection between the old kingdom of God and the new kingdom of God, the old version and the new version, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. So that that was not a, a, an accident that Jesus chose 12. He did that on purpose. I'm absolutely convinced. Now notice here the 12 apostles were not chosen out of the blue. They had already spent some time with Jesus, watching him minister, watching him drive out demons, watching him heal withered hands and people who can't walk and all that. So they had seen him work. Now Jesus here gave them authority over the unclean spirits to drive out demons. And I'm, I'm assuming that there was healing, too, that they could do, which they hadn't done before this, I'm assuming. And so now they have authority to go do this. 
Now, of course, the next question is, well, what about us today? Well, it's true that the 12 disciples had authority. Does that necessarily mean that disciples today who are not the special 12, do they not have authority to go out and drive out diseases and heal? Well, I think they do. I'm waiting for a cessationist to show me a verse that says I don't or that somebody else doesn't. I mean, I've seen unclean spirits driven out by people today. Don't tell me that people don't have authority to drive out unclean spirits. I've seen diseases and sicknesses miraculously healed and have heard credible testimony from friends of mine who have prayed that such diseases and sicknesses be healed. But, of course, I'm sure it's all in my mind and I'm making it up, according to cessationists. Now let's move on to verses 16 through 19 in Mark chapter 3, and we'll see the disciples' name. Now this is one of several lists in the New Testament of the disciples, and comparing those lists could drive people crazy unless you've got a Ph.D. in New Testament, which I don't. So we're going to have to try to um, make some, get some clarity out of these names and try to figure out who's whom. Verse 16, he appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Bornerge, that is, sons of thunder. That's Aramaic there that's being translated into the Greek, which is then translated into English for us, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's start out with some general observations about the twelve. Only five of them do we know much of anything about. The rest of them are sort of shadowy, and sometimes we don't even know who they are. I read a book one time called In Search of the Twelve Apostles, and I read the book, and it was so full of speculation after speculation after speculation, I said, this book hasn't helped me a bit. Here are the five that we know something about. Peter, of course, he's very famous. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are born heirs, the sons of thunder. They're the ones that called down fire on an unbelieving village one time, or wanted to. And James was executed by Herod Antipas in Acts chapter 12. And John, the son of Zebedee, wrote the Gospel of John. And he wrote the three letters of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. Judas, of course, betrayed Jesus. And Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. So those five we're not going to worry about. So that still leaves us seven more to worry about. But first of all, before we do that, let's point out some interesting facts. Two of these disciples had diametrically opposed political viewpoints. Matthew was a tax collector hired by the Roman government, and Simon the Zealot, Simon the Zealot, he was in a party, the Zealots, that wanted to kill occupying Romans and overthrow their government. Now, can you imagine those two in the same band of disciples following Jesus? What's the application of that? It shows that Christians who normally, in the flesh, would hate each other's guts can put their differences aside and follow Jesus because he's bigger than all those differences. People who are following Jesus of, Jesus are very diverse because Christianity is a worldwide religion. I mean, they're believing Christian Jews and they're believing Christian Muslims. People who used to be Muslims, who used to hold to the Jewish faith, who's converted. There's even Democrats who are saved. It's hard to believe, but it's true. It is of utmost importance to meld individuals into a team on a, more lo- a smaller scale here. If you're working with Christians, it takes brokenness and patience to work with people other Christians, because they're not perfect yet, they're not fully sanctified yet, they exhibit unregenerate behavior sometimes, and you got to work with all that, but it can be done. I mean, if Matthew and Simon the Zealot can get together and work together, anybody can. Now, before I go through the list of 12 names here and try to give us something to identify the apostles with, something we can remember, 
let's discuss this, why the names were even given in the first place, especially since some of those names are kind of shadowy. John Gill suggests well, it's for the truth of the history, just to show that details tend to establish credibility of a history, and there's, just, there's details. And people reading these Gospels could say, yeah, I knew that. I knew James, the son of Alphaeus. I knew Thaddeus. I knew Philip. And it gives more credibility. He could have just been to honor the apostles, but I'm not sure there's that a lot of honor because the disciples point out a lot of shortcomings of the apostles. And like I said, seven of them, we don't even know who they are. Or at least so that's not quite a, an, a motive that would apply, I don't think. Also, to help detect and exclude false apostles, John Gill says, if you know who the true ones are and they're listed in the, in the Gospels and these Gospels are being read by the early churches, then they would know who the true apostles were and who the false apostles were. That makes a lot of sense. Now, before I go through listing the apostles one by one, I will point out that if you compare the three lists in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're actually fairly consistent except for one. In Luke, in Matthew and Mark, there's a Thaddeus. In Luke, Thaddeus is called Judas, the son of James, and so we'll assume they're the same person. Otherwise, the names are quite or the same. All right, having said that, let's go, first of all, through Simon. Simon, of course, is the Jewish name for Simon Peter. Uh, his, his strict name was Simeon in Hebrew, but Simon, is, according to John Gill, is his name according to the Jerusalem dialect. He was given the name Peter because Petros means rock, because Peter was going to be the rock, his confession was going to be the rock of the church upon which the church was founded. And then, of course, he was also named Cephas in Aramaic. We know about Peter. No need to talk too much about him. Now, the next disciple that's mentioned is James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, the ones that are called sons of thunder. I've already mentioned James was executed by Herod Antipas in chapter 12 of Acts by the sword. John, the other brother, the son of Zebedee, Salome was probably their mother. The two fishermen that fished with Peter and his brother Andrew, they were in business together. That John wrote the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, and the book of Revelation. Next we have Andrew. He and Simon Peter were from Bethsaida. They went back to Capernaum and bought a house there and lived there with Peter's mother-in-law. Andrew was the guy that brought his brother Peter. Andrew was around in the south near Jerusalem watching John the Baptist baptize people. He found Christ and then he went and found Peter and said, we found the Christ, and he brought Peter to Jesus. Next, we have Philip. Now, Philip is the guy who brought Bartholomew. Well, it's actually in John chapter 1. Philip found Nathaniel, if you recall that. And Nathaniel said, what good can come out of Nazareth? You say you found the Messiah from Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth? And then Jesus looked at Nathanael and said, "Before you're a man without guile. He was a man without guile. And Jesus said to him, Before I saw you before, you were sitting under a fig tree. Sounds kind of supernatural there. And Nathanael was so impressed that he followed Jesus, even though Jesus was from Nazareth. Now, the passages in Mark 3 and Matthew do not mention Nathanael. They mention Bartholomew. They have Philip and Bartholomew in Mark. 3, Matthew 10, Philip and Bartholomew. We go to Luke, and it says, it says, Philip and Bartholomew. So you see that couplet there, the, how they're paired together. So from that, scholars deduce that Bartholomew is another name for Nathaniel. So we'll assume those two guys are the same. 
Next, after Bartholomew slash Nathaniel, we have Matthew. Of course, he's the guy that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He's the tax collector. Had the big banquet with all his tax collector friends after he met Jesus. And then next is Thomas, Doubting Thomas. We know about him. Took him a week or so before he believed in the resurrection when Jesus said, Put your hands in my wounded side, Thomas, and believe. Blessed are you, you believe by seeing. Blessed are those who have believed when they have not seen. And then we have James, the son of Alphaeus. Now this guy, James, the son of Alphaeus, is also called James the Less or James the Younger. We get that from Mark chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. This is looking on the crucifixion. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. That's the other, what I call the other Mary. So now again, a lot of this is, you can always doubt some of this because the Hebrews had this terrible naming convention. They named everybody by the same name. and It's hard to tell them apart. But Mary, the mother of James the Younger, is also Mary, the wife of Cleopas, or, and Cleopas is the same name as Alphaeus, and one of those perhaps was the one on the road to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday day. So I'm going to assume all those people are identical. So we'll just call him James, the son of Alphaeus, who is the son of one of the women who saw Jesus crucified, and also one of the women who brought spices to the grave on Resurrection Sunday. The, the son of the quote-unquote other Mary. Otherwise, we don't know too much about him. Next is Thaddeus. Now, Thaddeus, as I said, is probably the same as Jude, who is mentioned in Luke as Jude. He's also mentioned in Acts 1.13 in another list. Let me read this list in Acts 1.13. When they arrived, this is to the, up, to the upper room, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip. Peter, John is... The son of Zebedee, Peter is Simon Peter, Philip's the same all the way through. Thomas is doubting Thomas, Bartholomew slash Nathaniel, Bartholomew also known as Nathaniel, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. So we have Judas the son of James in Acts chapter 1. In Mark we have Thaddeus, and in Luke we have... Judas, the son of James. So Judas, the son of James, is in Luke, is in, in Acts. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. He called him Judas, the son of James. The other gospel writers called him Thaddeus. I'm assuming they're the same people. Now, why they had different names, I don't know, but apparently they're the same people. All right, so this Jude, the son of James, also known as Thaddeus, how can we remember him? Well, he's probably the same as the Jude that wrote the book of Jude, the Old Testament book. He's mentioned in John 14:22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? This is at the Last Supper. Now, some people say that he might be the Lord's brother because in Matthew 13:55 it says this, Isn't this the carpenter's son, Jesus, the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And there's a list of the first names of Jesus' step-half-brothers. One of them was named Judas. So people say, well, maybe this is the same Judas. Could be. All right, we've got two more to go. Simon the Zealot. This is a description of Simon's religious zeal, of course, because the Zealots were a revolutionary party of the Jews who were violently opposed to Roman rule. He's given the, the nickname Simon the Zealot to distinguish him from Simon Peter. Now, the Zealots were so zealous that they would kill anyone immediately without a trial if they were caught in adultery 
or blasphemy or idolatry or theft. No trials, boom, kill you. As soon as they they caught you in flagrante delicto with another somebody not your wife, bang, you're gone, your history, your toast. They were subject to no court. They refused to appear in court. They were responsible for unspeakable murders and evil during the siege of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. So that's quite a background Simon the Zealot was converted from. Some say he was Jesus' brother because, as I mentioned in Matthew thirteen fifteen, four brothers of Jesus are listed their first names. One of them is Simon, so it could be Simon the Zealot. That's, of course, speculation. Note that in these lists of the apostles, they're listed in pairs, which is kind of interesting because they were sent out two by two. Mark 6, 7 says this. This is not at their recruitment, but this is at their commissioning. Mark 6, 7, later on, he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And they're listed in pairs. All right, we got one more. Last but not least, Judas Iscariot, one of the most famous apostles in all history because he's the one that betrayed Jesus. Where does the name Iscariot come from? There are lots of suggestions. The best that I've seen is the NIV study Bible note, which says that it probably means the man from Kiriath, which refers to Kiriath Hezron, as mentioned in Joshua 15, verse 25, which was a little place 12 miles south of Hebron. He's always called Judas Iscariot, says John Gill, to distinguish him from the author of the New Testament letter, that Jude, that Judas, who was probably the brother of Jesus. By the way, it's probably sort of comforting to know if you've ever been betrayed by a close worker, if somebody like Paul was betrayed by Demas or somebody does you dirty and they're real close to you, even Jesus, even Jesus' apostles had a Judas. They were betrayed from within. Now we're going to continue in Mark chapter 3 with two more incidents. We're going to see that Jesus' family thought he was crazy and the Pharisees thought he was possessed of a demon. It's amazing. Jesus does a bunch of good stuff and this is the reward he gets for it. His own family thinks he's crazy and his own the religious authority of his own people says he has a demon and they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at verses 20, 21, and 22 first in Mark, or I should say verses 20 and 21 in Mark. They have no parallels in the other Gospels. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, then he went home. This is after appointing the apostles. Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered, to get, uh, gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. Now, this is probably the home of Peter and Andrew. According to my NIV study Bible, this is the home of Capernaum. Now, this crowd that came might have been the same crowd that we saw in Mark 2, too. So many people gathered together so that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was, so he was speaking his met, the message to them. They might have just followed him from place to place. Discovered him after he came back down from that mountain after praying all night. And the same crowd's there harassing him so he can hardly, can't even eat. That same crowd probably realized after he'd gone up to the mountain to, to pray, they realized he'd come back to Capernaum. And so they continued their harassment. Now, remember, this is especially difficult for Jesus because he had been up the last night praying all night. And that morning he had called, appointed, and instructed his apostles. After doing, And before that, he had healed a bunch of people the day before. So then he comes back home, and instead of getting rest and food, chaos. Verse 21, when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. Now, no doubt his family had come from Nazareth to Capernaum. Nazareth was about 30 miles away, according to my NIV study Bible. Perhaps they came from their own houses in Capernaum. They probably came from Nazareth because Jesus' reputation is getting pretty well known now. And they heard about all this craziness going on. And so they tried to restrain him. They said, he's, he's gone crazy. He's out of his mind. They wanted to restrain him to get some rest, according to John Gill. And so their motives were pure. And I assume it, their family, 
his family motives were pure. They just said he's crazy. He's not sleeping. He's not eating. All he's doing is go around healing people, and, and, the, and he's got the whole, not only the, all of Galilee in an uproar, but all the surrounding districts. Now we go to Mark verse 22 in chapter 3. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said he has Beelzebul in him, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Well, the Pharisees didn't give Jesus a fair shake. They had him they had him condemned from the get-go. So now we're going to look at the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit passage, and this does have parallels, or I should say a parallel, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. Now, I will say there's another passage in Luke chapter 11, verses 15 through 22, that the NIV Study Bible says is a parallel. Robertson says no, and I've noticed that my other commentators are all over the place on that, so we can't tie down exactly when this happened, but it's the same. It's probably two different occasions, I think, but it's the same idea. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being possessed of a demon. So let's look at that, we'll re and we'll give some background. The parallel passage in Matthew gives a little bit more than Mark as we start out. So we'll start out in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 23. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. And all the crowds were astounding and astounded and said, perhaps this is the son of David. Now the son of David, of course, is a popular Jewish title for the coming Messiah, so they thought maybe this Jesus is the Messiah. So again, it's in the middle of all this commotion and uproar and excitement, he healed this man. Now, he was unable to speak, and the Greek word for unable to speak or dumb means deaf and dumb because the two diseases went to, the two disabilities went together. So he was blind, deaf, and dumb. He was in a Helen Keller state of mind, and Jesus healed him. The crowds are starting to believe in him and not the Pharisees. They're going to accuse him of being possessed of a demon. So now we go back to Mark, and we read in verse 22, the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem. When it says come down from Jerusalem, sitting up high on a plateau, so even though it's going north, we tend to look at a map and say he went up to Galilee. No, they went down from Jerusalem up to, to Galilee. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said he has Beelzebul in him, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, what does this term Beelzebul mean? Beelzebul was the prince of demons, according to my NIV study Bible. This comes from the Greek, the term Beelzebul. Actually, the Hebrew form is Beelzebub. Here's an example, 2 Kings 1-2. All the Greek, this is a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, who says this, All the Greek manuscripts write Beelzebul, which undoubtedly is the right form of the word. The other reading came in no doubt Beelzebub. That reading came, no doubt, from the Old Testament Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, which it was designed to express. So we got Beelzebub in the Old Testament, Beelzebul in the New Testament. Now, the Hebrew form in the Old Testament, Beelzebub, means Lord of the Flies, and it was a parody. The, 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 the name, actually, Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, was a parody on the true name in the Old Testament, which was Beelzebul. Here's Second Kings 1, 2, and Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messages and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will cover from this sickness. Now, the actual name of the god was Beelzebul, which means exalted Baal or Prince Baal, according to my NIV study Bible. But here in Second Kings, the writer or Ahaziah, King Ahaziah, called him Beelzebub. I don't know whether that was a mistake or whether he's making fun of it, a parody. 
Apparently, people think it's a parody, making fun of Exalted Bale. Instead of calling him Exalted Bale, they're calling him Lord of the Flies. Now, why would this god of the Ekronites, the Ekron is the, one of the five Philistine cities, why would this god, Beelzebub, get a name called Lord of the Flies? John Gill speculates it could be that their god was an idol who was in the form of a fly, a fly god, which is pretty disgusting. Or it could refer to the abundance of flies around the meat that was offered to the idol. Also pretty disgusting. Or it could be that they had an idol of some unknown sort which was invoked to drive away flies. So I don't know. But at any rate, that bales above, by the time it got to the Greek, it, it, it's, uh, they're using the term Beelzebub, which means God of the Dunghill, which is pretty close to God of the Flies. The name Beelzebub or Beelzebub came to be used of Satan. And so here in our passage, in our parallel passage in Matthew 12, 24, he cast out, Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. What they're talking about is Satan, because he's the ruler of the demons. So Beelzebub basically is another word for Satan. Now, it does say in the scripture that Jesus was accused of having a demon. For example, right here at the end of our passage here in Mark 3, verse 30, we're going to read this. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the people were saying that he has an unclean spirit. John 7:20. the crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. You have a demon. John 8:48. the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they accused him of being demon possessed at several occasions. Let me right here give some passages which are along the line and on the same topic here. Matthew 9:34, the Pharisees said he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So that's another place a little bit earlier than our current story here. And then in Matthew 10:25, which is in our parallel, it is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? All right, so this idea of Beelzebul, the rule of the demons, and Jesus operating by Beelzebul was widespread amongst Jesus' enemies. Returning now to Mark chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rebels against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. Now, it seems to me that's a perfectly logical answer. And in fact, it's so logically one it surprises me the Pharisees would make such a stupid charge. Why would the devil be driving out the devil? That makes no sense. That's like saying a Democrat's trying to kick another Democrat out of the House of Representatives. That makes no sense because that would hurt their overall strength. Apparently, their malice must have clouded their judgment because their charge was, quote, incredible and absurd, unquote, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Now, the parallel in Matthew 12 says, knowing their thoughts, he told them every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. How did they know their, he know their thoughts? John Gill and Adam Clark said it was through his divinity that he knew their thoughts, and I think that's not so. I think any, anybody could have seen that these people hated Jesus. Their hostility was probably written all over their faces and stamped on their foreheads. This idea of a kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction was a proverbial expression, incidentally. Matthew adds another argument that Jesus used against the Pharisees that Mark doesn't mention, Matthew 12, verses 27 through 28. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul... Who is it your sons drive them out by? Because the Jews are going around driving out demons too. Well, if they're driving out demons, then 
Jesus is saying, your guys must be demon-possessed too. I'm driving out demons. I'm doing the same thing that you Jewish exorcists are doing. And if you're accusing me of driving out demons by Beelzebul, then your Jewish exorcists must be doing the same thing. Because we're doing the same thing, so we must be doing the same thing in the same name. The name of the ruler of the demons, Satan, Beelzebul. For this reason, they will be your judges, meaning the Jewish exorcist, your sons. Who are they driving them out by? For this reason, they, your sons, will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. But if, on the other hand, Jesus is saying, I'm not casting out demons by Beelzebub, but I'm casting them out by the Spirit of God, then by golly, the son, kingdom of God is here. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 27. On the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house and rob his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he will rob his house. And again, the point is, is usually a man who has a house is the enemy of a thief. And Jesus is comparing himself to the thief breaking into the strong man's house. And so there, therefore, Jesus, the thief, would be the enemy of the strong man because he's trying to rob his house. And he's basically trying to rob the devil of his possessions, of his demon-possessed people. And so that's, again, another, another object. He's breaking into the strong man's house and robbing it. He's breaking into Satan's kingdom and robbing it. Robbing it. Mark chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. I assure you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they may blaspheme. But whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this is the famous blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. NIV describes that as attributing to Satan Christ authenticating miracles done in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you see something openly right there in front of your face done by the Holy Spirit, and you say the devil did it when Jesus openly shows his divine power, and you say the devil did it, you're not going to be forgiven for that. Now, I'm assuming that this saying that the works of the devil were done, works of the Holy Spirit were done by the devil, I'm con. I am assuming that this means that they continued in that sin because I think that even that would be forgiven if somebody actually repented of it. But these Pharisees were not repenting of it. And that's who Jesus is talking to. He's saying, I'm not going, you're not going to be forgiven. You have blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that's not going to be forgiven. I don't think he's saying it'll never be forgiven. It says, will not be forgiven. I don't think it means it will never be forgiven even if you repent. Somehow people always like to say that. And also, people carry it even further. They say, well, you know, I've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I got mad at God. And, you know, I know I've got Christian friends who got mad at God and yelled at him. And that scares me when I hear that. I say, oh, no, how could you do that? But they're still following the Lord. They ask forgiveness for it. And they say, I'm so sorry. I have two or three cases I've heard. I even heard a Christian acquaintance of mine. He was the leader of my intervarsity group in at the University of South Carolina before we got kicked out because we were charismatic. And that man got so angry at God, he told God to go to hell. Can you imagine the worst blasphemy I have ever heard? I, that thing sent chills up and down my spine when I heard it, and I still hadn't forgotten it. It's almost 50 years later. I believe that he's, he went on with the Lord and became a pastor. He asked forgiveness for it. What the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is when you say that something that is obviously from God is from the devil, and then you don't ever ask repentance for it. So people need to quit warning. And as 
as you hear pastors say all the time, people say all the time, is look, if you're worried about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you haven't blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Because if you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, you don't care. Just like these Pharisees don't care. You're not worried about going to hell. You're not worried about blaspheming God. If you're worried about it, that means you're penitent and God still loves you and he's forgiven you. So don't worry about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Let's move on now. to Matthew finishes up here with a verse that's not in the Mark passage. So let me read this. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. That's Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messianic title for Jesus. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the one to come. Now, why the difference? Because Jesus' divinity is veiled. Jesus the man, Jesus the human being, and people say that he's from the devil, well, that might be a little understandable. But when you see a deaf, dumb, and blind man healed by prayer to God, and you still say that that's, that's from the devil? No, that's not going to be forgiven you, Pharisees. You better forget it. You're never going to be forgiven for that. And again, I'm assuming that they don't repent. All right, so now let's turn to the last, let's return in Mark 3 to the story of his family thinking he was crazy. You recall back in verse 21, when the crowd had gathered so they could not eat, verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And then we have the incident of the, of the Jesus healing the man, deaf, dumb, and blind man. And apparently all this is going on, and the family had not gotten through with Jesus, and now we return to the uh, Jesus' mother and brothers, his family trying to get to him in verse 31, which, which is where we are now. Now notice back in verse 21, Joseph is not, not mentioned. It mentions his family. Uh, the NIV study Bible infers from this that probably he's died by this time. Let's discuss why did the family want to see Jesus in the middle of that crowd. Remember, they thought he was nuts. In verse 21, in verse 21, it says they thought he was beside himself, beside himself, which is just another polite way of saying they thought he was nuts. He's out of his mind is the way the ESV puts it. Well, why did... Given the fact that this is what they thought, what was their motive in trying to rescue Jesus from the crowd? Here's some options. This is from the NIV Study Bible and John Gill. They probably wanted Jesus to relax from his heavy schedule, which means they didn't think he was literally out of his mind, but he was close. Or maybe they thought he was literally crazy and needed to be taken care of in an insane asylum if they had such back then. The enemies of Christ were saying he was out of his mind, and maybe the family believed the reports. Things were certainly out of kilter up there at Galilee. Maybe it was a matter of pride. They wanted to show everyone they were related to the great teacher. I don't believe that one. Maybe they wanted to point out to Jesus that he was in great danger. Maybe they wanted to point out that conspiracies, even at that early time, were already being formed against him. Now, notice, I will point out here, well, first of all, I think that the real reason is is they wanted to get Jesus out of the crowd so he could relax. I don't think they literally thought he was crazy. They just wanted him to slow down. But notice the attitude of Jesus' family. It's the attitude of many missionary families' attitudes. Their attitudes tracks closely with Jesus when they find out that one of their family members is going to be a missionary. I have seen this. I have seen this. I have seen this. The great example of this is Bruchko, that great missionary to Colombia whose book talked about how he was so hungry one time collapsed and the worms that were in his intestines were so hungry they came out of his mouth and he dreamed about it. I'll never forget that passage. But it was an incredible story how he risked his life to leave Canada and go down to Ecuador, or Columbia, I believe it was Columbia, 
And he grew up, got interested in missions because his mother ran a missionary society in his little church up there. And then when it was time for him to go to be a missionary, his mother says, no, 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 you can't go. That is all too typical, my friends. What's more important, our family or spreading the kingdom of God? What's more important, our family or our job? Peter and Peter and Andrew, James and John, they all left their jobs for the opportunity to follow Jesus. Are we willing to do that? Probably not. Now, these brothers that came along here, his mother and his brothers came uh, standing outside. That was Mary was there and the brothers. They probably did not believe in Jesus at that time. John 7 verse 5 says this, for not even his brothers believed in him. So I, I suspect, again, the timing of this thing is hard to know exactly, but it's early in his ministry, so I don't think his brothers actually believed there. And I'm not sure what his mother thought. Of course, Joseph was not there, which makes one think that he's already died. Well, as it turned out, of these brothers, James and Jude later became the leaders in the church. Who were these brothers? They could be stepbrothers, Joseph's son by a previous mar- pre- marriage previous to Mary. This, that, of course, is the Catholic's assumption. They could be half-brothers, Joseph and Mary's natural children, which is the most natural explanation according to the NIV Study Bible, and that's the one I believe. Adam Clark says that this is as likely an option as the others. He gives it 50-50, half-brothers, step-brothers or cousins, which we'll talk about in a minute here. They could have been the children of Mary's sister's son. Mary, the wife of Cleophas, the one who was standing and watching the resur- watching the crucifixion and who came with spices at the resurrection. In, I think it's Luke, it says, Mary, the mother of Jesus, comma, Mary's sister, comma, Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And so because the way the commas are, is that a different person who's Mary's sister or is that the same Mary, the wife of Cleophas, who is in opposition to the phrase Mary's sister, which means that Mary, the wife of Cleophas, is the same thing as Mary's sister. And I always have trouble believing that because I can't believe two people in the same family who have the name Mary. So anyway, it could have been Jesus's cousins because it was usual among Jews to call cousins brothers, same as it is in China. So it could be. So we can't know for certain, but I assume it's just his half-brothers. So they're standing there, and they want to see Jesus. Now, Jesus, when he replied, look, my brothers and sisters, my mother and brothers are around me. I'm ministering to them. He was trying to emphasize the higher priority of his spiritual relationships. He was not meaning to reject his natural family. The Bible has plenty of stuff in there about honor your father and mother, you know. But those people were there. They were not there in belief. His family members were coming to tear him away from his ministry, and I'm telling you, If you have sons and if you have daughters who want to be missionaries, who want to serve God, let them serve God. they got enough problems. The world's going to hate them. And then you, their significant others who mean the most to them, now you're saying, no, I don't think what you're doing is all that important. There's other things you should be doing. Don't do that to them. Let them serve Christ in the best way possible. Where did this happen the people who were sitting in a circle around him, I think it was outside. It could have been in a house or a synagogue. I believe it was outside. Now, Jesus has said he was told. A crowd was sitting around and told him. Somebody in the crowd said, look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. What were their motives? Well, maybe it was delivered with honest intention. Hey, you need to see your mommy. You need to see your brothers. Or maybe it was designed to try and interrupt him to see if he might be charged with neglecting his natural relations. Oh, that's pretty paranoid and suspicious there. I don't believe that's what was going on. It could be, but I don't think so. Could have been one of Jesus' disciples that had seen the mother and brothers. At any rate, Jesus said, No, the people I'm ministering to are my mothers and brothers. And thus we finish Mark chapter 3. Hope you enjoyed it. 
We will see you in the next audio, which is we'll start with Mark chapter 4. Hope you enjoyed this audio.